have this amazing, wonderful letter of Ephesians, which is in many ways a mini Romans when it comes to an explanation and understanding of the full gospel. So, as an introduction, I would like to look a little at the challenges that Paul and his team faced when they planted the church. The city of Ephesus was considered the second largest city of the Roman Empire, apart from the city of Rome itself. The Apostle Paul, after staying in the city of Corinth for 18 months, he travels to Ephesus round about in the spring of 52 AD. That was part of his second missionary journey. And he was joined by his good friends, uh, a couple named Priscilla and Aquila. And although this time he stays for only a very short period, he promises the people of Ephesus, in Acts chapter 18, verse 21, he promises them, I will come back if it is God's will. So he makes his plan, but he puts himself in the hand of God. And I think that's good practice for all of us. We make plans, we, you know, we're going to go here, we're going to go there, but we need to cushion it, we need to condition it, we need to submit all our plans into the hands of God and his will. So when Paul eventually does return to Ephesus on his third missionary journey, the city continues in the grip of darkness. It was a dark place. It was a city devoted to sex and spirituality. I don't know, think of what are some of the cities that come to mind? Uh, what are some of the suburbs? Uh, King's Cross, Byron Bay, a mixture of both. The great temple of Artemis was located there. Artemis is the equivalent, equivalent of Diana to the Romans. This Artemis was for the, for the Greeks. So the great temple of Artemis was located and, and, and was as familiar to the people of that day as the opera house is to us today. So the city was locked into pagan superstition. The people miserable and depraved with a common practice of black magic and other practices of the occult. And to tackle all of this, the Apostle Paul's weapon of choice was nothing more than the gospel. Is that it? Is that all you're going to go with? That's right. That's, that's what he did. So let's look at um, verses 8 to 10, the powerful word. So this is a little bit earlier from our main reading this morning. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. You notice one of the things that the Apostle Paul and his team used to do is that Wherever he went into a town or a city, he will always, first of all, go in the synagogue where the Jews used to meet. So a lot of 
because the Jews very good into trading and all that. They established themselves throughout the, the empire and wherever they went, they established the centre of the Jewish faith was the synagogue where they practised Judaism. And so that was the first bridge, the first point of connect. Wherever the Apostle Paul went, this is what he did. So at first, the, the Jews made the Apostle Paul feel welcome for three months. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures, no doubt talking to them about Jesus Christ, the Kingdom of God and where it all fits together. But when some of the Jews realised that what he was actually getting at, the, the, the crux of it all was that it meant submission to the Lordship of Christ, they started to oppose Paul. And remember that Jesus' main opposition also came from the religious establishment. So that pattern continued. And because these Jews made trouble for Paul, he was kicked out of the synagogue, he, he moved out of there and into rented quarters called the Hall of Tyrannus. This was probably one of the, the lecture rooms where the Greek philosophers and teachers employed to teach their trade, philosophy. So Paul rented it, according to scholars, from 11 o'clock in the morning till 4 in the afternoon. In South America and many parts of the world, we call this siesta time. So you, you do your morning shift and then in the heat of the day, you sort of take a rest, you have your meal, a bit of a sleep. Um, you know, you, a lot of the shops are closed. You, you went home for a leisure meal, took a nap, or you listened to some theology in the Hall of Tyrannus with the Apostle Paul. Imagine the privilege. I just said, what do you want to do? Oh, let's, let's go and listen to the Apostle Paul. Explain to us the kingdom. What a privilege that would have been, right? Listening to all of this from the Apostle Paul and his team. What happened? What happened? Verses 18 to 20, lives were changed. Many of those who believe now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number of a number of those who practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. The band of Christians began to increase. Lives began to be changed in, in a most dramatic way. And they had this giant bonfire in the city of Ephesus. The people brought their books of magic, their horoscopes, their occult literature, costly thing. This stuff didn't come cheap. They totaled up the value of all of these books, 50,000 pieces of silver. In today's money, ran about $10 million up in smoke. These new believers began to clean up their lives, literally. As they sat under the teaching of the Apostle and heard God, how God longs to set people free, they began to see 
but that what their practices, what they were doing with astrology and horoscopes and the influence of the stars and their lucky charms and, and, and all the other superstitious practices, all of this stuff held them in bondage. There is, this is big, guys. You travel, just, just go to many of the shops, you know, the Gnostic shops and all of this stuff. It's all around the central coast now and all around Byron Bay. It's everywhere. Go to Newtown. Crystals. Put some crystals in your home, they say. You know, it's good for your health. You're feeling sick, lack of energy. This will help you. It just aligns things. Guys, if you have any of this rubbish at home, get rid of it. I mean it. Get rid of it. If this is what the people in Ephesus did, what are you doing with this stuff at home? You know? So they began to confess all of this and, and, and were freed from darkness. They were changing the pattern of their lives as they saw that they could no longer practice this stuff as well as live the Christian life because they represented two very different kingdoms. One was darkness and another one was light. It reveals that they were just willing to be free from this terrible practice. And, and this account makes very clear how witchcraft takes hold of people. Human beings, human, human beings are not easily invaded by demonic forces unless you give them permission, unless you start opening doors and windows. Demons, especially demons, can't really force their way into a Christian's life. Though they long to do so. What they must do, however, is deceive us. And then get a foothold. But they start to creep in. They must find a way by which they can trick us into yielding our wills to their influence and power. And when they do that, when we willingly open the doors, they move in, possess the mind, control the thoughts, and suddenly they start dominating your whole life. This illustrates how darkness works. The only thing that can put an end to that is the light. So what happened? Was Satan and his dominion just going to take all of this laying down and take it easy? Oh yeah, let's be tolerant here, you know. Let's all live together in peace. It's alright. No. The enemy strikes back, verses 23 to 27. At about that time, the arose a great disturbance about the way. The way is what the early Christians used to be known as. So a silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a lot of business for the craftsmen. 
He called all the workers together and told them and gave them a spiel. Remember how the first opposition came from, from the, the Jews? Now the opposition comes from the pagans, the silversmiths who made little silver amulets or souvenirs of the goddess Artemis. And they saw that suddenly business wasn't as good as it used to be. Why? Because people were becoming Christians. They, they weren't buying, you know. You've got to buy this, you know how it goes. You've got to buy this, then you've got to buy his little brother. and little You've got to get the whole family collection and bring it home. Make it sit on the shelf on top of the fireplace, wherever it is. Suddenly they, they weren't doing that. Demetrius, the union boss, <coughs> president of the I don't know, Chamber of Commerce, whatever it was. He wasn't really concerned about the people who were enslaved to this. He wasn't really concerned about the the moral depravity. He wasn't concerned about that at all. He was was about money. It was about sales. It was about the bottom line. Yeah. And the bottom line doesn't care about lost lives and injustices just as long as they can make a buck. And Luke, who wrote this, Dr. Luke, he he gives us a description of how mob psychology works. Demetrius could not have started that riot in Ephesus just by complaining about his waning profits. No, 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 you don't do that. That would be too obvious. So he had to add an emotionally loaded ingredient to get the other citizens of Ephesus on board with him. This is happening today. In the way that pagans are attacking the church and how politicians get attacking us, they they really... I'm going to go directly they're going to find other ways, other arguments in order to to do what they do. It's not enough for uh, the owner of a cake shop to say, look, I can't, I don't really want to bake a cake because it goes against my religious principles and, and the person just walks away and says, okay, fine, we live in a tolerant society, we'll accept that. You don't want to make a cake for a gay couple, I understand that. I'll just move next door to someone else who will. That's okay. That would be easy. No. These are bigots. You get the press involved, you get the lawyers and you go direct them and they win one case and you bring them again. You don't just want to You don't just want to prove a point. You want to destroy their lives. People working hard, trying to make a living. You go after them. You don't go after what they believe about the gospel, the nature of God. No, no, you don't attack their theology. What you do is you... It's about intolerance. That's how they do it. So the charge he brought 
forward was that the religion of the city was being threatened. That their goddess Artemis was insulted by this and was in danger of losing her stature in the eyes of the world. Remember that Artemis was the goddess enshrined in the temple outside of Ephesus which was known This temple was big. This is huge. This is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That's how big it was. And some believe that the image of Artemis was actually carved from a meteorite uh, that fell from from heaven and therefore that's why the town clerk reminds them that the image had fallen from the sky. So they knew that they could stir up the whole city with this because it was nearing the start of the party season when the people of Ephesus gave themselves over for a whole month of debauchery, centering on the worship of Artemis. The city was packed with people who came to Ephesus for a sexualised religious carnival. It was a humongous orgy, basically. People went for that. So there are two revealing things about this speech by Demetrius. Firstly, his accusation was ridiculous. If Artemis was really a powerful goddess that the whole world should worship, then why couldn't she defend herself against the attacks by Christians? Seems pretty simple. Secondly, he didn't say how his trade was ruined. There was no evidence that Paul had said anything against the religion of Ephesus. He had never denounced the temple. In fact, the town clerk admits in verse 37, these were not blasphemous of the goddess nor robbers of the temple. Now this is significant because you see, there was nothing negative about Paul's approach. If he and the Christians had indeed attacked this pagan philosophy, they might have had a case. But these Christians did not denounce paganism, which they could have done. They simply introduced a positive new faith of such tremendous power that all who experienced this left their old life and turned to Christ. The best way to attack darkness is to turn on the light. Isn't it? This is the reality of 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. The old nature is robbed of oxygen by the appearance of the new. And there was no need to attack. Christians simply declared Jesus Christ and what he gave to man, salvation, freedom. And, and, and those who were enslaved to darkness, superstition, they found so much grace in Christ that all of their empty paganism simply could not compare. Doesn't stop there. Then a riot develops, verses 28 to 32. When they heard this, they were furious and began shouting, Great is Artemis! 
of the Ephesians. Soon the whole city was in uproar. People seized Gaius, Aristarchus, Paul's travelling companions from Macedonia and all of them rushed into the theatre together. Paul wanted to appear before the crowd but the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, sent him a message begging him, please, you know, don't venture into the theatre. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. You've seen this in the screens, right? You've seen it in the demonstrations, and the, right? Most of the people did not even know why they were there in the first place. <laughs> Why'd you come? I don't know. Why'd you come? I heard there was a riot going on, you know? Oh, okay. There's nothing on TV anyway, so let's just, I don't know. Let's just go. The city was filled with confusion. They rushed into the theatre, they dragged with them Gaius, Aristarchus, Paul's companions. And Paul wanted to go into the crowd, but they said no. Some of the leaders said, no, don't do it. Please don't. It's too dangerous. And, and Luke's description of the events is it's actually hilarious. This is, the Bible does have humour and this is it. Most people did not even know why they were there. Human nature has not changed in 2,000 years, has it? Here was a crowd excited by this false emotional issue. The people so responsive to a riot. They had no idea what was going on as long as they could raid a store and steal a television, a microwave and go home, put her on a trolley and go home. About what? What was that all that about? I don't know. Verse 33, the Jews pushed Alexander to the front, they shouted instructions to him, motioned for silence, but when they realised he was a Jew, it just got worse. And they shouted for two hours, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The wild mob has no argument. There is no logic. There is no reason. Other than to chant over and over and over again a slogan that touched their emotions. The Jews are getting concerned. They had lived in this city for many, many years, done their business there. Yes, the Jews in Judaism would have been opposed to the worship of idols. But the Jews, having lived in this city for all of these years, we have to ask, how is it that they weren't able to have any impact on the lives of these people? They had the right belief. It's there in the Ten Commandments. They shall have no other gods before me, right? No, no idols, none of that. They had the right belief but without any power to bring about the change in people's lives. That's sad. So the crowd refused to listen to Alexander and the chant goes on. And when the crowd gets to the point where its emotions have been short-circuited, reasoning is gone, 
it's in a very volatile, dangerous state. Paul's friends were obviously justified. But then God uses someone else, the town clerk, to silence the crowd. And this is something that we need to remember, that God is always in control, even though we are not. God is. For all the frustrations that we go through, we have to recognise the sovereignty of God. Yes, Artemis is great. This is what the town clerk said. He wasn't a believer. He was simply a public servant, right? We, we can count on her to defend herself, so why worry? Nobody's going to be able to overthrow a goddess of such great as ours. So we don't need all these promotions. The men you are charging have really done nothing provocative. They have not blasphemed the goddess. They haven't robbed the temple. They haven't been sacrilegious in any way. Therefore, there are different ways. There are different avenues. Let's handle this in a legal matter through the courts. And then it brings the big one. We are seriously in danger of losing the freedom of the city as a result of this indiscretion. Bang. That's, that's the big one. We don't know the name of this town clerk, but he is a clever politician and a good speaker. He intervenes just the right moment. He does not really obviously care about the issue as he wants to keep the peace. And, and, and why? Because he wants to make sure that the Romans don't get alerted. He knew that the Romans would tolerate almost anything except civil disorder in their provinces. Because whenever that happened, wherever it happened, that didn't come in with you know, feathers and you know, drinks. Come on guys, let's have a barbecue in the town centre and get everybody talking to each other. No, they came in all guns blazing. Hammer and sword. They will, and here is the evidence again of God using a civic leader to intervene on behalf of his people, bringing calm to a situation. The word of God grew, Satan got upset, started a riot. But nothing would stop the spread of the gospel throughout Asia Minor and Europe. It was a wave sweeping across the region because God was doing something amazing. To bring all these thoughts together, the church should always be known as the people of God because of the positive impact we are having in the community. We should all understand that this will become increasingly difficult in the current environment. We will see increasing opposition in Australia, as it's happening in Canada, in the West, in many places of the world. What Ted described is that the persecution of Christians throughout the world is not a distant, is not as far as you guys might think from where we live. 
Yes, there are churches getting into trouble for proclaiming the gospel. That will happen more and more if we proclaim the true gospel, that is. But there are times churches cause a stir for all the wrong reasons, like the for example, the pastor in the US who a few years ago burned the Quran, right? Why would you need to do that and cause the riot? Why? There's no need for that. These Christians would not have accomplished the same result by directly attacking the established false religion. If you and I want to change our community and our world for Jesus... It's about committing ourselves to being light in the darkness and leading people to Jesus. Yes, there is a time to protest unjust laws, laws that kill the infant, the unborn, laws that desecrate the family. These are all things that were brought about by Christianity itself and as the the Christian faith is further and further removed from the centre of our society and our laws, we're going to see more and more of this. But ultimately, communities change not because we have put in place enough laws to do away with all sin and immorality. There's a lot of good moral people going to hell. Just being good doesn't give you eternal life. Only Jesus does that. Long gone are the days when Sydney and all of Australia might have been considered even moderately Christian. Reality is that our city has a lot more in common with Ephesus than it does with Jerusalem, let's say. Because of this, we have to learn from the early church because that's where we're heading. We're heading back to the first and second century with regards to our mission strategy. No, they didn't water down or compromise the gospel in order to fit the culture. We continue to speak the truth in love and leave the rest for God to work. If there's going to be a riot, the biggest riot should happen inside the heart when the Holy Spirit starts to clean things up. Right? One life at a time one life and the next and the next. And whatever happens after that in society, it's really up to God. May God give us the strength, the courage, the faithfulness to live our lives for him. Amen.